This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. From WMPG, this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and today we continue our series on PTSD among women who have served in the military. Today's show is part two of my interview with Miosha Thomas, who served 10 years active duty in the United States Navy before she was injured in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. She is currently the founder and CEO of One Savvy Veteran, a nonprofit organization geared to serving women veterans. In last week's show, Miosha talked about her experiences working in military intelligence in Italy, where she had to go to the scene of a helicopter crash where her good friend had died. She also talked about the impact of her multiple deployments on her young daughter, who was just three months old when Miosha first had to leave her. Today, we'll be hearing more of her story. Welcome back to Safe Space Radio, Miosha. Thank you. I know that you've already suffered one trauma, which was the loss of your good friend. But eventually, I understand that you, too, suffered a very severe injury. And help me understand, where were you at the time, and what were you doing there? My final deployment was 2006. Um, I deployed to Iraq. And it was pretty much just set up communications here, set up communications there, nothing really strenuous on my part. Um, There was a military accident where pretty much our convoy was hit. Um, So I was sitting on the uh, sort, if you think of a car, a Humvee like a car, regular car, I was the passenger. I never drove a Humvee. I was always sort of chauffeured from place to place, um, setting up communications wherever they needed because communications not only involve phone lines, computers, and but also, you know, all the top secret things as well. It was nice to be a chauffeur, actually, <laughs> from place to place. You kind of felt important. Um, that's why I say it wasn't so bad. I wasn't ground troops. You know, I wasn't going into town. And um, I had a gun, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have had to use it. I was just fixing computers that day man we don't know what happened it happened so fast um faster than you can even process it's like one minute you're in one location then all of a sudden you're transported to another location and you have no idea how you got there I pretty much passed out very quickly after the accident I didn't learn a lot of the details until afterwards So you call it an accident, which made me initially think it was like something that happened within yourselves, as it were. But did you hit an IED or like what? What do you mean by accident? We hit an IED. And we call it an accident because it wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, I see. So so but so you hit an explosive that was designed to affect the U.S. troops. Yes, but it's also our job to search. There are people that go out to search for IEDs and that was just one that was missed. So, you know, that could have been an accident on our part. Someone just overlooked it, missed it, not doing their job, or it could have been a new one after they had already cleared that area and something was put afterwards. You know, we don't know. Um, That's why everything just sort of gets lumped with accident. Okay, so you, there you are. You're riding in the passenger seat, 
out of the blue, there's this huge explosion. The whole world sort of shifts. And tell me what happens next to the best of your memory. So I remember the sound. I remember sort of this feeling of sharp pain. But it's the type of pain you don't know where it's coming from. Like if you stub your toe, you're like, ow, I know that's my toe. I can point to where the pain is. This particular pain resonated everywhere. Then I remember warmth, almost as if you're on a beach and the sun is beaming down and everything is good. Like I didn't feel anything but the warmth. Um, and I actually took that. I thought I was dead, actually. It's like, wow, this is heaven. I made it to heaven, you know, because that's a part of moral injury. Like, oh, am I going to get to heaven? Um, and then I remember nothing. I remember waking up for a moment in a hospital bed and then I'm out of it again. Next time I wake up, my mom is over me and she's sort of really gently talking to me explaining to me where I am and sort of what happened and kind of filling in some of the gaps from what she was told because she wasn't told everything because she was a civilian. So she's just, you know, you're safe. My daughter's safe. You were hurt. She told me about them wanting to amputate my leg. And of course, like I kind of look at my leg is still there. (laughs) And she's like, you know, I told them not to. And the doctor comes and kind of explains to me that my lymphatic system has been destroyed from the waist down. Now, at this point, I'm not talking because my face had bandages and my jaw was wired shut, so I can't talk. I'm I'm trying to touch myself, and my mom is just really calmly talking to me. I hear the doctor talking, but I'm not really contemplating. My whole focus was my mom. (laughs) But the doctor said that I'll never walk again, Because my leg was probably about six times the size of a normal leg. Yes. And it's, it's, I know you can't see it, but it's still pretty big right now. But it was huge to where I couldn't bear weight and it was infected. Because if you think of it like stagnant water, when water sits, bacteria. So that's what was happening on the inside of my body. So now we're talking blood poisoning. Then I had blood clots in my legs and my lungs. So everything was just happening. Doctors were telling me um, I could have a pulmonary embolism and die at any moment. And so I'm 24. And people are telling me I'll never walk again. I can't talk. My face is all wired. At this time, I don't even know what my face is going to look like. You just know I had some accident, surgery on my face, and now my jaw is wired shut. So I'm thinking hunchback Notre Dame. And when my daughter didn't want to come to the bed, you know, because you think, well, at least I have the comfort of my family. And my own daughter didn't even want to come near me. And no one's showing me what I look like. So I'm imagining the worst if a child is afraid of me. I told my mom to leave and don't come back. And I had to write it (laughs) pretty much. Just leave, just take her. I wanted my mom, but I wanted to protect my daughter and protect myself. The look in her eyes, 
she was really scared. You know, I already have, you know, issues around whether or not I'm a good parent. And now I'm scaring her on top of that. Just, just, just go. Um, it was horrible. Physical therapy. I, I spent like a year in the hospital. I'm now in a position where I have to depend on everybody else. Um, I need help going to the bathroom. I need help bathing. I feel like a child myself now. I went from being this totally independent, capable woman to now the opposite of that. So now I'm depressed. Everyone's telling me I'm going to die. I'm depressed. I'm starting to believe it. And I I just was not a nice person to be around. Um, I didn't want to eat. I wound up eventually getting a feeding tube. I was really trying to commit suicide, but it's hard to commit suicide in a hospital because they're constantly watching you and, you know, not trying to eat. Like, I'll just kill myself by not eating. Then the feeding tube came. I'll just kill myself by not going to the bathroom. And then the catheter came. It was just, I call it the dark ages of my life because I no longer had the will to live. Not even the idea of having a child and living for a child, because in my mind, she's better off without me. She's been without me, and she can get like $400,000 if I die. So I just thought the best thing for everybody involved was death. Mm. A friend of mine came to visit. I'm in Maryland. She was stationed in Virginia. She heard about the accident. She came to visit me as soon as she could. Um, She walks in the room, and the first thing she's like is, what is this smell? Now, mind you, I'm not bathing or anything. It's just like this stagnant, stuffy um, scene. The curtains were drawn. Like, I just stayed in the darkness. So she comes in, like, spraying her Victoria's Secret body spray in the air. (laughs) And she opens the curtains. And it was almost like a vampire. I was like, you know, like, oh, my God, this is the light. Close the curtains. And she's like, why are you sitting in the dark? What's wrong with you? And I'm just like, are you not seeing me in the hospital bed? I can't walk anything. And, you know, she just started to really just go in on me. You know, one of those friends that just whatever comes up, comes out. And everyone had been walking on eggshells around me. They didn't know what to say, so most people didn't say anything, so they wouldn't say the wrong thing. But not her. She was really yelling at me and upset that I didn't see this as a blessing, that, you know, I survived and, you know, there were I had a support system, that there were people who loved me. I had a daughter and... Um, And she told me she was not going to come back until I was the Miosha that she remembered. And she left. She left. And at first I felt so insulted, like offended almost. Like, how dare she talk to me like that? I'm the sick one. I'm the dying one. But she left the curtains open. And I just remember sitting there because I couldn't move. (laughs) I just remember sitting there looking at the light pouring in. And I felt a warmth, almost that same warmth 
that I have felt in Iraq that I remembered. And I was just like, wow, Miosha, you know, if you are going to die at any moment, like they're like they've been telling you for weeks and months now, is this the moment you want people to remember you by? And I made the decision. I didn't want it to be like that. And once I changed that thinking, physical therapy started to go a little bit better. So your friend says to you, I don't want to see you again until you're back to the Miosha that I know. When did you call her back? I spoke to her about two years later. Two years. And what did you say to her? I told her that she saved my life. I needed that raw, uncensored, unfiltered honesty to sort of shake me and just give me a moment of clarity. Because it only took a moment. Has she not drawn the curtains? You know, it's almost like a a series of events had to happen just for me to have just a one moment of clarity where I decided to live. Thank goodness for your friend, eh? She's what what an example of true friendship. Yeah. Mm. So you mentioned earlier last week, you mentioned that you didn't really feel haunted by that helicopter crash that had happened previous to your own injury until after you got home. In some ways until after you were safe at home. And how do you understand what it was that started the symptoms of PTSD that you have from that first tragic accident? Well, in the veteran community, PTSD has such a negative stigma to it. No one wants to get diagnosed with PTSD. We may know we have it, you know, we may recognize the symptoms, but we don't want it. Uh, we don't want to admit that there's something wrong. So for a while, I tried to deal with it on my own, but it was getting worse. It's so ironic to me how PTSD works. You would think that my PTSD stems from my own accident and everything I had to go through. It didn't. It's more because of what I witnessed other people going through or what I had to be a part of. I will say that even with my accident in Iraq, it's almost as because I didn't deal with the tragedy that happened at the helicopter squadron, it opened the door for other things to sort of creep in. I would say the only thing that I deal with from my accident is sometimes I'll be driving my daughters and everything's going okay. And then there's this overwhelming feeling I get that there's going to be an accident. That something is going to go wrong in this moment. And I have to talk myself down. (laughs) Like, you're a good driver. Everything's going to be okay. But sometimes I'll just get this feeling of dread. And I now know where that stems from. But it started to affect my activity. I mean, veterans come home and sometimes we isolate. And then you, you slowly get out of that isolation. But PTSD can put you right back in that isolation. 
And I know for a fact that it's in that isolation. It's in that darkness, similar to how I was in the hospital. It's in that darkness where your thoughts play terrible tricks on you. Your fears just compound all the negativity. It amplifies it. And you can get lost in that. Yes. So did you seek treatment? I did. So luckily, there are so many different types of treatment. Because for a lot of veterans, talk therapy does not resonate with us because that's that. I got to get into my feelings. I got to (laughs) share. You know, I I just want it gone. You know, I don't necessarily want to go through all the touchy-feely stuff to get rid of it. I just want it gone. And that's how we go into therapy. It stopped me from getting help for a little bit. Then um, the VA offered alternative therapy, acupuncture, music therapy, art therapy. I found art therapy works the best for me. Just to sit sometimes with other people in silence who understands we do group art therapy and to just put it out in whatever medium you want. You know, we have people doing computerized art. We have people sculpture, painting I like to do a lot of collage work. It just helped calm me. And I think it's in that moment of calmness, there's a moment of clarity. And they have therapists in the room if you talk, because you have to build rapport with people. I just can't talk to anybody. Um, After seeing them and working with them a while, you begin to talk. And then they talk about different ways to cope. And that you're not alone. I think our isolation is so dangerous. Isolation kills. Yes. I understand that you founded an organization, One Savvy Veteran, a nonprofit there in Chicago, to help women veterans with the challenge of the transition to civilian life. Other than the kind of isolation and that feeling of dread that you're talking about, What were the other parts of that transition that were hard for you? I think the other parts that were challenging for me was family and friends. Not quite getting it, why you're different, why, you know, you're not interested in the things that you used to be interested in. And sort of this pressure, not just from your family, but for society to sort of integrate back you know it's almost as if you know it's this huge puzzle and you're a piece and they want you to neatly fit back into that space but you're all rough around the edges now like I no longer fit into that space so now you're just sort of outside of the puzzle looking at something that's not quite complete and you feel like you're the reason why it's not quite complete so then you feel guilty that I'm not the same person I don't even know how to begin to try to be that same person. I'm just no longer interested. I'm changed. If society and our families were more accepting that we're changed instead of pressuring us to be the same, just like, okay, you're changed. Let's go from there. Let me learn about who you are now than necessarily who I remember you to be. Because so many moments in the military will change you. Altogether, it was like eight people that I knew died over the 10 years of my military career. 
how can I be the same? And you putting this pressure and added guilt doesn't help the situation, doesn't help me want to talk about it um, because you feel that moral injury. You know, I, I still to this day have not walked into a church and our family was a church going family. When you say I feel that moral injury, tell me what you mean by it. To me, the moral injury is when you go against something you believed in, um, your value system. Military members, we have two value systems. We have the one that we were raised with that got us in the military. And then we have the value system that the military gives us. And sometimes they align, but sometimes they conflict. You know, we grew up very Christian, very church family. You know, thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder, thou shall not lie. And in the military, especially working in intelligence, there was some information that I'll get that would be totally different that was put out to the public. I remember when I was in Italy and September 11th happened, we got a list of next possible targets. And one of the targets was actually in Chicago. So, of course, I wanted to call home and let my family know and warn people. And I was told I couldn't. It's top secret. You know, so I don't say anything and possibly family members died. But that's a part of honor, courage and commitment to the military, but not to your family. You know, it's a constant struggle of moral codes between what you learned in the civilian world and what you have been taught in the military. So when I came home, that first Sunday home, you know, my grandma and everybody wanted me to go back to church. I couldn't. I actually lied and said I wasn't feeling well. But then every Sunday I wasn't feeling well. And then every Sunday I just wasn't picking up the phone because I didn't want to have to lie anymore and say I wasn't feeling well. You know, in my mind, if I walk into the church, I'm just going to set on fire uh, for everything that I've done and been a part of. So I don't go. That's why I said when I got injured in Iraq and I felt that warmth and I thought I was dead and it was heaven. I, you know, it was almost like exciting, like, wow, I actually made it to heaven. And then you wake up in another place and like, oh, I still have to try to get to heaven. Um, and I don't know but if I, I'll get there. So what happens to the idea of God is forgiving? The God that I was raised with is also vengeful. <laughs> um when you break his laws, there are consequences and no sin is greater than the other. I can't get to heaven and say, well, but God, I was doing it for my country. You know, I, I don't think he makes exceptions for soldiers. And if I was your pastor sitting here, what do you think your pastor would say to you? Just hearing what you just said. My pastor would say God is forgiving. God knows your heart. Um, God was there, which is why I survived, which is why I keep surviving. But you got to believe that, you know, I, I, I hear it and you want to believe it. You know, it, it would, man, it would take away so much of your moral injury and your guilt and your shame if you could believe that.
but the rabbit hole goes so deep and it's so dark and I made a choice just like I made a choice with my daughter I had a choice you know you think you're doing what's right but it was still your choice which compounds the hurt you know will God forgive my choices I don't know if I can't forgive my choices why would God Usually it's supposed to go the other way around first, isn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine that one day you might feel that? So it's been ten, almost 10 years since my injury. And I have a different mindset. I, I'm so not that girl that was in the hospital bed wanting to die and just in a depressed state. But I'm not that far from it. You know, it, it scares me. I never want to be at that place again, which is why therapy has been so helpful, because now I can self-talk, positive self-talk. When I feel like, you know, I'm a bad mother, you know, I have to self-talk, you know, no, you're a good mother. You're doing the best you can. When I feel like my military career was cut short and I abandoned the mission, I self-talk that. You can't be there all the time, you know. The mission will go on with or without you. When I'm scared in the car driving with my daughter sometimes, I have to self-talk. Like, I'm here I'm to be present in the moment because PTSD will definitely continue to take you back. You just have to remind yourself to be present in this moment. Um, and that's what that's where my mindset changed. You know, if I was to die at any moment, what would that moment be? I, I have to be present in the moment. I have so many hopes for the future. You know, I hope my daughter understands. I hope the older she gets, our relationship would be just like me and my mom's. Yeah. And I wish that when I do die, that I will be welcome into the gates of heaven. But those dark thoughts creep up that that won't be you. So I just have to stay present in the moment. And, you know, in a way, um, my organization is almost like a way to redeem myself. Like the more people I help, you know, the more lives, you know, I help fix instead of tear apart. That maybe I could clean the slate or at least balance it out a little bit. You know, maybe God can't make an exception for a soldier. Hmm. You know, it it feels to me, you've, you've told me so much today. It feels so forgivable to me. I mean, your your contrition, you know, is so is so clear. I keep having this recurring fantasy. I think about your friend who visited you in the hospital and tore open those curtains. I keep thinking, you know, if I was your minister, I would want to come into your house and do that with you and be like, Miosha, of course forgiveness is available for you. You got to feel deserving of forgiveness. Yes. It's, it's my only way 
it's like something to hold on to. Something, Operation Forgiveness, like it's a mission. It keeps me motivated. It keeps me up late at night trying to, you know, work on my organization or deliver groceries in the middle of the night. It's almost like I don't want to give up my shame and guilt. Hmm, how come? One, because I don't think I'm 100% deserving. Like, how dare I not feel guilty about what I did with my daughter? And then she's left to bear that burden on her own. Right, so some part of you believes you deserve to be punished, like you're trying to atone for it. I am. Yeah. Is there another reason? It's it's almost... It's the last bit of the military I have left. What do you mean? I was supposed to do 20 years. Even though they retired me because of my injuries, a real retirement to me is 20 years. You do 20 years in the military, you get retired. And then you've done your job. I see. So do you think you're going to have to carry this guilt and shame for four more years? You know... It's so twisted, but yes. Hmm. Some of the people who died, they wanted to do 20 years. How dare I be comfortable? How dare I be free of this when they didn't get the opportunity? And yet, Miosha, I don't know those people. But I would bet you money that if they had a say, right, they would never require that punishment of you. I can't believe they would want that. No, we never want, soldiers never want things for the other soldier. (laughs) I think there's a part of me, Miosha, that feels so moved by your story that just so wants to make it better, you know? Ironically, it's, it's fuel for me. It's a motivating factor. And I don't even think I could ever explain it or articulate it enough where someone understands. But it motivates me. And this story is not a story of tragedy. You know, it sounds tragic and it sounds painful. But everything that has happened to me developed me and prepared me to help other people. So I wouldn't change anything about my story. If I knew it would end the way it has ended, I I wouldn't change it. And actually, my story is not over, you know. It's one of pride. It's one of pain. It's one of tragedy. It's one of triumph. Um, All in it. So I want to end with that because you are doing this work through One Savvy Veteran that seems to me to be making a huge difference. You're running this retail uh, boutique, resale boutique called Combat to Chic, which I understand a woman veteran can go in there and shop for free if she needs to. Yep. Shop till she drops. No limit. (laughs) And you provide emergency assistance to women veterans who might otherwise be homeless? Yes. Um, Groceries, rent, gas. Uh, We help the children. Uh, We did a lot of prom help. Every month we host a social event 
where women veterans and non-veterans can come together and talk and try to better understand each other. Because we live in two different worlds, almost two different realities, same world, two different realities then. Um, It's a way to come together for better understanding. Your show creates better understanding. And that's it. Um, Once you create that understanding, you create a bond and bonds build bridges. I really believe that. What you're doing is very beautiful. It's very inspiring to me. Miosha, thank you so much for being my guest, for telling your story, and for the incredible work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for creating a platform for me to share. So I want to direct people to your website. It's onesavvyveteran.org. Is that right? Yes. Great. You can read more about Miosha Thomas's inspiring good work there. If you like the show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And if you want to hear any of the previous shows in this series on women veterans and PTSD, please go to our website, safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.